0: So, welcome to Flip Stories, uh podcast. This is episode 4. Um Flip Stories is a podcast about mistakes made and lessons learned while flipping homes, and it's hosted by me, Andrew Meyer. Uh today we have our first guest and our guest is Matt Rodick from uh, He's the CEO and founder of Fun That Flip. Um I'll ask him later if I totally butchered his last name. Um Fund That Flip, it's uh, based in New York City, and it's a company, they're uh, they're building and operating and growing a real estate investment marketplace. Uh, pretty much, if you're flipping a home and need a loan, you can apply on their website uh, for funding, and if you're looking to invest in qualified real estate loans, you can also go on their site and find one that matches you know, something you'd like to invest in. Um, some quick stats that Matt, uh, provided me kind of some, some fresher stats on their company. Um, each month their underwriters and their tech are reviewing over a hundred million in loan applications, uh, which represents about 500 loans per month. That they're looking at, um, and they've seen nearly 700% loan origination growth in 2016. um, fasted funded deal so far they raised two hundred thousand and twenty six minutes for a project um so matt welcome to the show
1: great to be here thanks for having me
0: yeah uh we're happy to have you as our as our guest and as our first guest um i want to yeah thank you for taking the time on a sunday head into the office to talk with us uh let's see here i I got a lot to i want to cover with you kind of go just a quick uh overview here um you I'd like to talk to you about some of your side hustles in college uh, that, you know, they earn some extra cash and pay for tuition. Uh, your first job out of college as an insurance underwriter. I think when people hear that, they might think like, oh, that sounds boring, but I always think you can pull <laughs> some interesting things out of <laughs> underwriting, you know? Um, your experience flipping homes in Rhode Island, which then I think really strongly gave you some good ideas for what what you want to do later with in the lending space? So yeah, let's let's dive in here. Um, sure. So before before you did the flipping and lending, um, you had a couple side of hustles in college. You did. I listened to an interview you did of Ambition Today, and you were telling them all about the landscaping company that you know you worked on with your dad, and then you kind of took it over. Yeah, I believe you ran it up through your sophomore year in college, and you ended up selling it. Uh, And I encourage people to look up that podcast because you you cover that really well. And kind of you see kind of where you kind of had a little little entrepreneurial um, bent through your childhood. But you also mentioned about uh, a side hustle selling t shirts in college. What kind of t shirts were you selling? Tell me a little bit about this.
1: Yeah. So I, I think, um, uh, there's, there's a big debate out there, right. Are entrepreneurs born, are they made, um, for, for whatever reason, I think entrepreneurship, my, my, my dad's an entrepreneur and I think I got an early taste of it. Um, I think my, my very first business was actually in second grade. Um, my family likes to joke. I got a, a creepy crawler machine for my, my birthday going into the second grade and I started manufacturing those in the basement of our, our house and selling them to my classmates. Nice. Um, and, uh, that kind of grew to, yeah, my, my uncle had an investment property in the town nearby and, and my brother and I um, w- would hop in the car on the weekends and cut the grass and make 15 bucks each week. That kind of evolved into me pushing the lawnmower up and down the street as a kid, um, you know, mowing neighbor's lawns. And then eventually I turned 16, I got a truck, a trailer, upgraded to some commercial equipment. Um, and, and it was really kind of my, my first foray even into real estate investment. So I ended up... Um, for for whatever reason, ended up doing a lot of work for um, real estate investors in in and around the town that I grew up. They owned properties that were rentals, or they were flipping properties, and um, you know, cut the grass as well as uh, you know, you know, did some things to make the curb appeal better for the houses. But also would would sometimes get involved with demoing the property. So me and my buddies would go over there with our trucks and, and clean the house out and take walls down and do some other things. But um, it was kind of like my my first taste at real estate investing, and it was something that I was like, man, I want to do that someday. These guys seem to be making a lot of money, and um, it was just it was just kind of cool and interesting to me. Um, but yeah, I was always always looking for a way to to kind of make some money on the side. I don't know what it was. It was just something that was very very motivating for me. Um, sold the business in college. I played four years of college football and um, didn't have time to kind of have a regular job, so. Um, my, my way that I earned some extra money spending cash was we'd print up t-shirts for the different sports seasons. And I went to a small school, so we'd print up, um, you know, football shirts, with the schedule on the back for the football season and kind of sell them door to door in the dorms. And then same for basketball season. Um, just a way to kind of, uh, just make some extra money. And it was, uh, it was kind of fun. So, um, yeah, just some, something that, that that I've always always kind of wanted to do was be my own boss and and make my own money and kind of do it do it on my own terms.
0: Yeah, so you know with the t-shirts, was that something where you're like you know you're sourcing it to like you know like a custom ink or some of these companies that'll you know you come up with a design and then you uh, have them print them or were you guys like screen printing these? Like, what was the how how were you banging these out these
1: shirts? Yeah, so my my dad's business is actually in promotional products and advertising oh, products. Oh, got so you. Okay, so he um, in there. yeah, he had access to all the vendors. So we he'd essentially sell them to us at cost with maybe a little markup for his time, and then you know we'd order two hundred of them or four hundred of them or whatever it was at seven bucks and sell them for 15 bucks on campus. Um, was, was kind of the thing. And I worked, I worked for him too on some on the side. So I'd, I'd sell to the student union groups and some of the other groups, you know, Frisbees and koozies and other things that, um, you know, they're putting together. So it was always something, always something to be sold. And, uh, it was kind of fun for me to just kind of another way to get involved with the different programs on, on campus. But, um, you know, always, you know, also make some money.
0: <laughs> exactly. And it probably also helped your dad a little bit because you can get better bulk discounts when buying raw materials. I can see that. So, um, yeah. yeah, that's, that, yeah, that's great. Um, okay. So, so that, you know, that's college. And, and you know, you were talking about doing landscaping for the flippers. You know, I think, you know, people who are flipping and if, if they find a landscaper who's not trying to like do some super fancy work in the yard, who just understands like, listen, I need this cleaned up. I need you know something to make it look good, but I'm not trying to break the bank. you can you can make some good connections there it, you know if, if you're helping them do their job so I, I'm sure you, I'm sure it was great you know the people you met
1: yeah we were I mean we were cheap right We were sixteen year old, so we were yeah. happy to work for eight bucks an hour or whatever it was and yeah. um, we did we did good enough work. We laid down mulch and trimmed hedges and planted trees and cut the grass and um, you know it, it kind of kind of worked for everybody
0: <laughs> great. Okay, so okay, so we'll move moving past college, um, you know, and you also discussed this with you know why you decided to go uh, work at an insurance company um, on the ambition today podcast, which I encourage people to check out. But um, so your first job was at an insurance company, and it looked like you were working in the underwriting department. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, so I, I really I really wanted to get into real estate after college, but I graduated in 2007, um, right when things were really starting to kind of fall apart um, Same in, here. in that in that world. So, um, yeah, took took a job with a, a large commercial property insurance company. Um, you know, it wasn't it's not like your typical homeowners policy. We were we were insuring. Um, they call it middle market companies. So we worked with like a lot of manufacturing companies, a lot of commercial real estate. Um, like one of my clients at the time was the Cleveland Brown stadium. So we provide oh, fire and flood insurance and right. stuff like to that, that scale of, of type of client. Right. Um, so yeah, it was cool. It was, it was kind of a mix between, um, sales and, and underwriting. So I was, it was called a production underwriter role. So I had to call on brokers, um, the people that actually had the relationships with the clients and they needed markets to, to kind of, to, to take the risk. So I spent half of my time, you know, on the roads developing relationships and talking about our products. And then the other half of my time, you know, kind of behind the computer looking at looking at deals and understanding, you know, what was driving the risk and, and how to structure the deals to, to properly protect the company, but also, you know, provide coverage that, you know, these these bigger businesses need. So it was uh, I think it was a really, really good learning experience in terms of understanding uh, risk reward trade offs. Mm -hmm. Um, but was also, you know, satisfied something that I like to do, which is, you know, to sell. Um, so it was a, it was a, it was a great first, especially first job out of, out of college.
0: Yeah. And you also, I mean, sometimes it might be boring, right? But like you, you do, you do see maybe something that you don't think is like a risky area of a business, but maybe insurance companies have just seen, they've seen the stats and they're like, listen, this is an area that routinely comes up as like a weak point. Um, so I'm sure it's interesting to see that. What, What was like, can you remember off the top of your head, like just the unusual, um, you know, something you guys underwrote that was like not typical where it was like, okay, (laughs) this company wants this done.
1: Yeah. I mean, I got to see the thing that I really liked about that job is I got to see a lot of cool things. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen the show, how it's made, but like, yeah. yeah, I was in, you know, I was in, uh, you know, manufacturing plants that made hubcaps and different car parts. Um, I got to see how trash bags are made, which is like a really cool process. It's like a big fan that blows like melted plastic really high up into the air and it cools on the way up and then gets wrapped around a thing. And then it's, it's like some of the stuff you don't like give me a different appreciation for like everything you see in your daily life. Like that had to be made somewhere and like, I wonder what the process was to make that. So it was kind of a cool job from, from that regard, but one of, uh, probably, probably one of the most interesting ones that pops out to me, and this was like very early in my in my um, in my underwriting days, and still kind of coming from a, a sales background, right? Like it was a it was kind of a, a shift for me. Like I wanted to I wanted to sell every deal that came across my desk, right? I wanted to win. I wanted to win every deal. Um, it's a little different than selling T-shirts, right? You sell a T-shirt, the transaction's kind of over. They get the T-shirt, you get the twenty bucks, and and everyone kind of goes on their way. The difference with insurance is, if you sell a policy, right, you're also assuming, you know, future liability or mm-hmm. future risk. So, um, one of my very first weeks or months on the job, I think this this broker kind of recognized that I might might still be a sucker, and he brought me um, this fireworks manufacturing company. Um, <laughs> I think it was out of Texas, actually, and I'm all excited because it's a big premium dollar, you know, for the for the risk that we're taking on, and I'm, you know. Trying to figure out a way, I kind of knew that probably didn't fit into our, our risk profile, but I knew we could win the deal. I knew that you know it would be a, a fat premium, and I remember pitching it to my boss, and she just kind of laughed at me in in a nice way. But um, that was kind of like my first, I think, real experience around like, all right, you can you can do deals, you can do every deal, right? You can price every deal, um, but there's a difference between doing deals just for the sake of doing deals and putting you know putting dollars on the books. Versus doing deals that you know are going to be profitable um, long term, and I think in a lot of ways that that training and that learning, even though it's very different in real estate investing, a lot of the same principles are there, right? You can you can almost on paper make any deal look good, um, you know, True. And, and, and do any deal you want to do. But the reality is, is if you're not careful, you're gonna you're gonna underwrite some fireworks manufacturers um, and they're going to blow up um, and they're going to create a lot of pain and heartache for for you and your business. So um, while not kind of a direct correlation to real estate investing, it has a lot of, it really shares a lot of the same principles, right? You got to understand the risks and, and understanding whether or not it's worth kind of the, you know, the upside or if, um, you know, some risks you, you just can't even, we couldn't even price that fireworks manufacturer to, to ever kind of, you know, make enough premium for if the thing did blow up, it was going to cost us 80 million bucks, you know? So it's like, uh, how much do you charge for that? Right. Like it's just, and and like we see deals in our business now, right? It's like, yeah, we could charge five and 15 or 20% interest rate on this thing. There's, there's really not enough interest ever, um, to, to make this deal work. So, um, a lot of the same principles, I think, which was, which was really good as kind of a, a right out of college job to really understand the difference between, you know selling a selling a transaction versus selling kind of a a deal which entails longer tail risk yeah totally it's like you
0: know two deals you know the one might be more risky and it might make you know a couple percent more but if it goes wrong it's it, it, it's going to be a, a much bigger loss than the other one so it's That's like right. just being able to see yeah just being able to see the downside if it does happen you, you know it's like maybe stay away from the ones that are, like the fireworks companies (laughs) okay we didn't we
1: didn't end up writing that one thank
0: thank goodness oh yeah my boss talked me out of it (laughs) yeah perfect so okay so great so that was the underwriting and then you mentioned um that your experience uh flipping homes in rhode island um you you said it it kind of opened your eyes to the business of the private money lending um you know the, the ins and outs there you didn't go much into much detail about the flipping of the homes in rhode island and it it, you know i might have been reading into the way you were talking about it but it sounded like there may have been some some um, some some mistakes there or some some definitely some lessons you learned there um first how did you end up in uh, rhode island
1: yeah. So the same company that I was with in Cleveland, uh, was headquartered in Rhode Island and I was kind of the young pesky kid um, that was always bothering our our upper management about our how our website sucked and how we didn't have good <laughs> marketing materials and how we had this great product, but we didn't know how to sell it. Um, so eventually the, the president of that company um, said, you know what, Matt, why don't you move up to Rhode Island and you can you can lead our sales and marketing group. Um, you know, and start to implement some of these these ideas that you have. Um, and it was a growing company; it had grown from like 50 million in premiums to like 650 million in premiums in the last seven years. Um, and kind of hadn't hadn't grown up in terms of uh, kind of a sales and marketing business along that road. So, in a lot of ways, I was the first kind of person to to lead the charge there on more you know institutional. Ways of thinking about marketing ourselves and, and selling ourselves. So um, that was a really cool experience. I got I got to learn a lot about, um, you know, marketing a global company. We were in seven countries. I got to travel a lot. I got to build some cool new websites and some other products. Um, I got to train a lot of our our, our company globally on, on how to sell our products. Um, it was a really cool experience and also got me uh, more exposure to management um, and kind of seeing how they live their lives and. Starting to ask myself, is this is this the path that I want to be on?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it kind of, I think, it forced me to to rethink about being an entrepreneur again, and um, and kind of going back to this idea of real estate investing, which was something that I had kind of gotten exposed to as a young kid, and said, man, I want to get back into that. So. Um, my first flip and I'm using air quotes here is yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, like a lot of, like a lot of people's probably is they buy something and they move into it. Right. Yeah. Um, so I bought a, a condo that was in the building that I was currently living in, um, out of foreclosure, um, oh, so moved into it, out of it.
0: Foreclosure. Okay.
1: Yeah, it was, uh, technically a wholesaler had bought it out of foreclosure and then I bought it from him, um, okay. with a, a slight markup. Sure. um, one bedroom, 900 square foot, nothing big. I mean, the the, the the building was pretty new. It was built in 2007, so it was only a five-year-old building. So the, the unit was in, in pretty good shape, um, but hadn't been lived in for a year. So there was a little bit of work to do, but... From my perspective, it was like, wow, well, I want to live in this building anyways. Um, you know, I can buy this thing pretty, pretty cheap and sit on it for a couple of years, live in it, and then sell it and, and kind of go on to the next one. So, yeah, um, that's what I did. The the probably the the biggest lesson that I learned was buying a condo comes with a lot of unknowns. Uh-huh. Um, one of them being is that the condo association and the, the condo building at large can make decisions um, to to make capital improvements to the building, and then do what's called a special assessment to all the owners to pay for that capital improvement. So there was one particular investor actually who had bought 270 of the 320 units um, out of foreclosure, and he had a a pretty strong perspective that the building needed a new roof, and it needed improvements to the exterior, and needed new pavement, and a lot of other things which ended up, I think, being very good for my longer-term investment. But two weeks into my purchase, I got slapped with a $7,000 special assessment Oh uh, wow! Which was about five percent of what I had paid for the for the property. So wow.
0: um,
1: you know, and, and kind of in hindsight, right? I probably could have seen this coming. The the you know, um, once you put a a contract on a condo, you have a certain amount of time to re- review all the board meeting notes and look at the budget. I didn't do any of that, of course. Mm-hmm. It was just like whatever, like let's go, um, you know. But um, you know, the condo association was in a bad place, like near bankrupt. Um, you know, the, the notes and the meetings had referenced the fact that work needed to be done and like, had I actually done probably more proper due diligence, I would have at least gone into, gone into that knowing that this was probably coming and could have maybe negotiated a better price with the seller. Um, but yeah, that, that was kind of one lesson learned. It's still something that we, you know, we kind of, you know, lean into here as, as lenders now as any, you know, we occasionally see flips coming on condos. Um it's something that we can we can lend on, but we also kind of have to uh, you know take an extra step in our due diligence to truly understand what's going on with the 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 Kano Association. Is it well capitalized? Um, you know, how's the building, you know, generally is it in good shape? Are there you know capital improvements that are needed, et cetera, et cetera? So um that was kind of lesson lesson one learned um on that project. I think a couple of the other things that happened is that building, the building was was very poorly built. You know, it was kind of built in the in the in the real estate boom and right. bust, um, and and just some of the mechanicals and other things weren't done properly. Um, I came back from Christmas one year to the fire alarms going off and walked into my unit and it was literally raining inside mm. of my unit because a sprinkler pipe had broken on the fourth floor and flooded four four apart. Like I think twenty some units had just gotten like completely soaked from this sprinkler riser busting. Um six months later a sewer line behind one of my walls broke and like dumped all kinds of nasty stuff in one of my in the in the den. So like just some like some like things that are unavoidable and like just part of I guess the process of owning real estate. Um fortunately on those on on those kind of losses I had a good insurance policy, which I think is the 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 other lesson learned is um, and we see a lot of this kind of where we sit now with some of our, our customers that that you know are buying the cheapest insurance policy that they can they can kind of get right um, which which can be a painful and expensive exercise later if you do end up having a loss. So uh, fortunately I had I had good coverage on both of those and I was made whole um, but they could have been could have been a lot worse had I had I not you know properly bought the, the types of coverage that, that ended up having.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. The I know. Yeah. The, the, the I think a lot of HOAs, uh, particularly condo associations, we're having a lot of trouble. And then, you know, they can just make odd rules whether they'll say only a certain percentage can be, you know, homeowner owned versus, you know, you know, like absentee owner owned. And, yep. and it can actually affect the loans you get. So it's like, yep. you know, if, if a condo complex is already above a certain amount of absentee owned, then you may not be able to get the loan you thought, or it's it's it, yeah, it's condos, condos can be it's tricky, tricky, and and, and they the, usually the the condo association won't answer your phone call and give you these documents if
1: you don't own one. You know, it's like yeah, it, well, it's really bizarre. Like I yeah. remember my agent was like before I put a contract, she's like, let's see if we can get the condo docs. Just so you can read through them, and they're like, like, no, like five hundred bucks. Like, yeah, it's like sign, sign the contract, and then you've got ten days to like review them. And it's like, what? Like these are like eight hundred page documents. Some of them. Yes. So yes. It's um, it, it's definitely a different a different world that you have to understand um if you're if you're buying condos. Per,
0: yeah. Exactly. So um, so how so? And it it sounded like you had some experience. Run-ins, I don't know, you know, I don't know if you're using funding from some of the private money lenders in Rhode Island, but what so like th- tell me about that what how, yeah, what, so
1: yeah, so so after I, I kind of bought my first property, i I started networking with um some real estate agents that you know worked with active real estate investors and got some introductions to some other active real estate investors in Providence. Um, I, I was really kind of you know, knowingly ignorant about the business. So I, I spent a lot of time shadowing these guys, driving around with them. Actually worked on some sites with a few of them. Um, my, my grandfather's a, a former carpenter and I always kind of used to like going out to his shop and building stuff. So like I would just go to job sites on Saturdays and help these guys out and try to learn from them. Um, so so I actually like the one property that I did, the the one that I lived in was really my my quote only only flip. Sure. Um, but what I learned, kind of following these guys around and understanding, like how are they financing their deals, and you know, just how they think about their business, is I learned about this this industry, which I, I knew nothing about, didn't even know it existed, called the hard money lending industry. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I remember um, one of the guys telling me, like, yeah, I pay, I pay four and fourteen, four points and fourteen percent interest to this <laughs> wow. guy. Forget his name. This can, mind you, this was back in 2010, right? So like, no one was lending anything back in yes. 2010. Um, you uh, know, it was like these two guys in Providence. They had their own money. One guy had like eight million bucks. The other guy had like twelve million bucks. And like they did all the lending in Providence, like to these guys, right? right. And they they charge whatever they wanted to charge. Um, and I remember thinking like, well, this is this is silly. Um, you know, this is eighteen percent interest, right? If you hold the money for a year, um, you know, and it's secured. The guy's taking a first lien position on the property, and you've got to still put twenty percent down, like. This seems crazy to me, right? And sure. at the same time, I was, I was, um, I don't know if you're familiar with like Lending Club yeah. and uh, Prosper. I was, I was actually doing some lending. So back in 2010, like you could still, like, go online and pick the borrower and like read the borrower story. Like, you know, the guys would put up there, like, oh, I'm paying for my daughter's wedding or I'm paying for a home improvement or like they'd put kind of like why they needed the money. Sure. And you could lend that guy 50 bucks, right? And a bunch of people would lend him 50 bucks and then he'd pay you your 50 bucks back plus 10% interest. Um, so like I'm looking at this unsecured consumer credit where I'm happy to be getting a 10% return and then seeing what some of my friends are paying these hard money guys 18% which is secured and just kind of a light bulb went off on my head. Like there seems to be, there seems to be an inefficient market here, right? There seems to be like not enough capital that can, can efficiently go into this house flipping world. Um, and if people are happy to lend money online on unsecured consumer credit at 10%, like they should be ecstatic to lend money at 10% on something that is secure, right? So that was kind of like the idea for Fund That Flip back in 2011 or 12. I came up with it was I wonder if I could create a lending club for real estate investments. For
0: real estate, yeah.
1: Um, and and that idea was much more exciting to me than 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 flipping houses, just because I I one I, I realized kind of early throughout the process that I didn't have the patience to go look at a hundred houses to like buy one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I and I knew myself well enough to know like I'm gonna screw this up because like I'm gonna look at like ten and then I'm gonna buy the eleventh just because I'm tired <laughs> of looking and like I'm gonna do a bad deal. Um. So uh, the whole lending business was just more exciting to me. It kind of like it was like uh you know further up the chain, if you will, right? You're looking at deals that kind of already been vetted by experienced borrowers. Um, there is really interesting technology play, um, and, and I had a lot of kind of technology experience with my my day job that I was doing, and I, I, I was just more excited about building a business that was a lending, a technology-enabled lending business than I was like actually being an operator. So. Um, just started talking to anybody that would listen about the idea. I kind of ran the idea by my my buddies that were flippers in Rhode Island. They all loved it. Um, ran it by my uh, father-in-law. Um, he was a former SEC attorney, and he was like, "Yeah, this is a great idea, but like, you'll go to jail if you do this. It's right. illegal to sell securities online." Um, so I was like, "Well, that's, that kind of sucks. I don't really want to go to jail, and I don't really like this idea." Um, so I, I kind of just kept, you know, researching it, figuring out there's got to be an angle here to make this work. Um, and I uh, came across the JOBS Act, which is the, the legislation that was passed in 2013, which um, essentially made what I wanted to do um, more legal, if you will. Um, so yeah, that was kind of my foray into now what is, what is Fun That Flip. Right, which I
0: believe I remember following a venture capitalist, uh, Naval Ravikant, I think that's how you say his name, and I think he was one of the ones that pretty much pushed through the, the JOBS Act and he he now runs uh, AngelList which is mm-hmm. like uh, yeah, yeah I think it's angel.co is the yep. the domain and, and you know you can you know it's kind of a cool thing where you can uh, like what you're doing with real estate loans you can invest in like say like a startup uh, seed round or this sort of yeah. thing um and and then going back I just want to clarify you know for someone who's like you know what 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 is security um you know you know when uh you loan to someone you get security it's like you know essentially you're signing a piece of paper to say, I'm going to repay at this rate. And in exchange, I'm going to sign this paper that if I don't pay on those terms, you can come and you might have a legal claim on my, my home. So it's like, if I don't pay the loan, then there might be a legal process for, uh, where the lender could come back and say like, Hey, I need your home now because you can't pay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's kind of Really, two generally general types of lending. There's asset-backed lending, right, and that's like mortgage lending, right. The the loan is secured by the house, um, car loans, right. Your loan is secured by your car. If you stop paying your car loan, they can take your car back. Um, boat financing, you know, th- these are what are called. There's an asset. There's a real asset that is that is in some ways like illiquid, right. And there's a there's a process that. The deed gets recorded, and you can't transfer the deed without first paying off the mortgage. Um, and then there's unsecured consumer credit or unsecured business credit for that matter, where um, like your credit card, right? If you stop paying your credit card, really the only recourse that the credit card company has is to, um, you know, damage your credit score, which obviously isn't good. But it's not like they can come after your your jewelry or something else, right? Like like their recourse is limited at you know, harming your credit score. Yes. Um, you know, so, so in, in generally speaking, right, like asset-backed loans are, are cheaper as a borrower because there is an asset behind them that presumably has some value that the lender can get, um, you know, can liquidate and get their money back on versus consumer credit. Typically the rates are higher because if you stop paying, right, the, the lender has to, to write that loan off to essentially zero. Um, and that was kind of, again, the, the head scratcher for me is like, why is this unconsumer, unsecured consumer credit cheaper than secured real estate credit? Like (laughs) that's, that, that shouldn't be right. That like breaks kind of the, the fundamentals of, (laughs) of, uh, of what I know about risk. Yes. Um, and, and the missing piece there is kind of what we've built our thesis on is the reason that the, the hard money lending world is more expensive is because, it's hard to get money into this asset class there isn't a there isn't a platform or there isn't transparency or isn't there kind of, there isn't consistency around um you know how we how we uh, how we underwrite and how we value um and how we kind of measure the risk like consumer credit like you can price that based on credit score and and uh, debt to income ratios and some other things that are are relatively easy to measure Um, you know, underwriting Andrew Meyer on one, two, three main street that he's flipping, like there isn't, there isn't like, like a standardized set of data points that like an institutional type of lender can like price that. Right. So like a lot of ways, that's what we're, what we're, what we're trying to build is more transparency into the space, um, a way to kind of benchmark some things that we think drive risk so that we can we can get more capital into the space and that we can you know we can properly price these things or let the market properly price these things as opposed to having a constraint on the capital supply which which I still think is happening right is causing them to be overpriced.
0: Yes, yes. And yeah, like you say there, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great problem uh, that you're trying to crack. I mean, um, you know, there's some companies that, you know, create vehicles that list on the stock market, but those cost so much to, to create that most people still get their, le- their loans from, you know, whatever bank of America or whatever local credit union. And there's, yeah, they just don't have the same acts ax- access to capital that say like a stock market listed company has, or so it, it's great to see these new, these new, uh, I don't know these kind of uh new ways of introducing capital into the real estate world um but okay, so going back i, I have a couple more questions on fund that flip uh hopefully you're doing okay on time um yeah. how how long was it between your your uh well what what states um or areas are you guys focusing on in the United States? Do you have a particular region or I don't know like what yeah. if someone in Hawaii said like hey, I want a loan <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, we we actually looked at Hawaii as a potential market because um, property values out there are actually doing pretty well. And there's again, kind of part of our thesis is there's not access to capital, um, and Hawaii is probably the extreme example of this. Um, we decided not to actually go out there, but I think there's a I think there's actually a really good opportunity there. Okay. Um. Anyways, for the most part, we're focused on the East Coast. So the East easiest Coast. way. To, yeah, the easiest way to think of it is start in Massachusetts, and if you go all the way down I ninety five. Um, to Florida. We lend in every state, um, you know, down that, down that 95 corridor. So, okay. um, and then we go West from New York through Michigan. So Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois, and Michigan. Uh, we skip Indiana, um, because they have a, uh, a particular regulation that requires us to be licensed, um, there, which we're, we're not yet. Um, but our perspective long term, is to be a a national player and be in, be in all the states. Um, but the, the short term, short term goal is to, to, to build up our market penetration in some of these states that we're already operating in. So in total, I think it's about 14 states.
0: Great, great. So, yeah, and I'm sure people can go on your website and maybe see what, you know, states are operating or, you know, maybe they apply and they get a quick answer like, oh, we're not, you know, we're not in that state yet. Um. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's great to hear. I'm, I'm sure you're working on your processes, like in each of those states probably have a little particular difference in the way you can underwrite or, you know, adver- I, I, you know, I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot of different things where you got to go state by state and think about the area and who's, you know, uh, boots on the ground or, you know, who's looking at properties. So I'm, I'm sure you got a lot of, uh, you know, parts of the puzzle to put together, especially with a place like Florida, you know, who, you know, it's like, it's like with, with the construction and hurricane stuff. You know, everything's a little different in the way things are underwritten. So from region to region, I'm sure you uh, see wildly different property types
1: and the risks, yeah. right? We we funded a loan um, this past fall, and I forget the name of the storm. It was in funded alone in Jacksonville. I think on like a Friday in like this hurricane was supposed to hit Jacksonville on like that Sunday, and we were like, "Oh God!" Like, yeah, what have what have we done? Right, right, right. <laughs> and like holding our breath the whole weekend. Fortunately, I think uh, like the downspouting got ripped off, but for the most part, the house was in the was in good shape. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting.
0: <laughs> okay, perfect. So I like there's there's a couple more here. Um, when 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 uh people are, are requesting funding and in applications with properties. Um what are some like some common no-nos or red flags that you might see and, and the reason I asked that is not so you know you know you're not trying to help people beat the system of some sort but it's like I think a lot of people especially in the flipping world maybe it's their first one maybe it's their maybe they um they they don't quite know how to see risk in their own deals that you might see but what would be something where you know, uh, like a red flag or, or something in a deal that would might prevent someone from, you know, getting some funding.
1: Yeah. And maybe it's worth talking a little bit about our criteria. So we, we, our business is really built, um, for, um, experienced flippers. So yes. we, we kind of like to see, um, people have at least two or three, ideally four projects under their belt, um, ideally done in the last 12 months. Okay, Um, this shows us that one, um, you know you can you can get deals done. Two, you have likely have teams in place and have, you know know how to execute on your plan. Um, and third, it it tells us that you you truly understand your market, um, you know, and you know how to build to that market to maximize value. So we like to say like we're 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 a market that once you've figured it out and maybe have used your own capital or borrowed from family friends, extended network, Um, and you need really that reliable partner to scale your business up, right? Go from four to 10, um, a year that's, that's where we, we really fit in and help our clients grow their businesses. Okay. Um, other than that, like we're, we're looking at the deal just like hopefully you are, um, and making sure that there's profit in the project. So we're going to take a really hard look at how much you are paying for the property um, what does your scope of work look like and and why is that the right scope of work? yes. Um, yes. really, really, to maximize the value um, of the property? and then ultimately we have a ton of data and a ton of resources um, to to kind of stress test against that that ARV, which is really the big unknown, right in the equation., uh, we know what you're paying for it. We probably have a pretty good idea of what you need to put into it to maximize value the big question mark in this business um, and and the one that we're all making our bets on is, is what's it going to sell for when it's done? Um, you know, so I think kind of a, a pointer for us or really for anybody that's trying to get, whether it's their first deal funded or, um, you know, their, their hundredth deal funded is for the most part, like lenders or even private investors, like we're conditioned to say no, right? Like we, we say no 95 times for every five yeses. Um, that being said, like we want to say yes. Right? Like I only have a business if we say yes, right? So, give us reasons to say yes. And the the easiest way to do that um, is 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 to to make sure that you've really done your homework. You've put some thought into the numbers. You've put some thought into your statement of work, and you're presenting that clearly. Um, and, and again, if it's your first deal or your 100th deal. Really, what you want to what you want to present to the lender is or the investor is that you know your stuff, right? Like you 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 know how to execute. You know what you need to do to to make the project profitably. Um, and if you're doing a good job of communicating that, and the deal is truly a good deal, like the money's gonna find you. Um, you know, we we've had this saying since we launched. Like like we, we, we funded our first deal. We had no money. Like we had, we literally had no money on the platform. We had no investors on the platform, okay. but we, we kind of took this thesis. Like if we find a really good deal and we put it out there to like our network of 10 or 15 people that we kind of know, like we think we'll fund it. Right. Cause it's a good deal and it makes sense. And like, why wouldn't someone want 10% on a good deal? Right. And that's kind of like, that's kind of been our philosophy ever since. Right. Like we don't have these big forward flow agreements with committed capital, nor do we really spend any money on on marketing to the investor side of our marketplace. We spend all of our resources on finding good deals, and those good deals bring in the money, um, right? So a very it's a very similar philosophy for you if you're an individual real estate investor. Good deals find money. There's more there's more money in this world than there is good deals. <laughs> so if True. you're if if you're finding good deals and you're and you know how to present that, whether that to be a lender or you know family friends extended network. Um, you will find the money. The hard part, especially right now, with where we're at in the market cycle, is is truly finding finding good projects.
0: Right, and and, and just to kind of like add on a little bit there, I think um, in the way in the for you know for listeners, anyone who's trying to get funding, I think if you if you present just a just a, a very accurate, well, you know, with a lot of comparable cells, and you have a good Good feeling for you know how much it is it's going to cost for your remodel and a very kind of stark selling price. Um, um, it it, it that's that's very helpful because I think when it's, when a lender they obviously don't ever want to have to foreclose although you know maybe in some maybe in some cases they they would be happy to take it back at eighty percent you know of uh, you know loan to value but you know they don't want to take back a project that you know, is halfway through a remodel and is actually maybe less than the the cost that you bought it for because you, you've stripped out all the walls and they're gonna have to hire contractors to like, you know, come in and do all this work. You know, they'd rather just lend to you. But if they know that if in the worst event they have to take it back, they're getting a deal there, um, I think most most lenders will view they you know, they see the downside as mitigated, right? And so it's right. like, you know, even if this guy, you know, for whatever reason can't finish this as long as you know the the risk is mitigated on the downside i think i mean it, it's hard not to get a loan and then finding a good operator who can you know meet his time frames it's it's yeah so it's it's always good to be very honest and just have very sharp numbers and then um yeah the, i think the money will find you um i have one more question or uh, for you what plans or goals you have for fund that flip let's say over the next 12 months and I don't I don't even know if you think past the month I mean you obviously obviously do but you know um and and this could be like a you know some sort of plan or goal uh it could be a growth goal that you just want to set for your team that you feel comfortable kind of sharing publicly or maybe like a new feature service that you're kind of looking at maybe it's not something you um you know you pushed out yet but kind of areas that you have on a product roadmap um do you have anything? Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like you said, we grew we grew about six hundred and fifty percent in two thousand sixteen. We, we want to continue to grow, kind of our core business, which is the six to twelve month fix and flip loans. Um, some other things that are on the horizon this year that I'm excited about. Um, we'll be rolling out a new product sometime in twenty seventeen um, that is that is more geared towards the 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 guy or the gal that's buying, fixing, and renting properties okay um and then you know takes us out either with longer term financing or um, we're also working some deals where we have relationships being here in New York with some some large single-family reIT operators that are looking to buy inventory Interesting. um so <clears throat> one of the products that we're still workshopping but we, we've got to, you know we've got some some operators that we're going to test this out with here in actually the coming months is buying product uh, fixing it up, tenanting it uh, with the types of tenants that these these REITs want to purchase. and then selling a 10 property portfolio in Miami to a, a REIT um, that's looking to grow their position in Miami um, or DC or Chicago or some of these other markets that, that some of these these bigger players like. So uh, I think we've identified this opportunity in the market where, um, where you need 12 or 18 month financing, um, to pull kind of a portfolio together, and we've also identified an opportunity where um, so some of these larger institutions that were buying, you know, dozens of properties a day back in the crisis are are still looking to grow, um, and they've got an interesting capital stack because some of them have gone public, um, but they need inventory to grow and they need inventory at scale. So it's kind of a cool product, that I'm I'm actually excited to to see where where that goes because um, that market's actually quite a bit bigger actually than the, the fix and flip market. Um, the other thing that we're doing, and, and this has kind of been a perspective, is, is you know, we while, while our our core business is today and, and likely always will be providing, you know, fast, reliable, affordable funding for fix and flippers. Um, we're also a technology company, um, and we do a lot on the technology side, and, and we've we've identified um, opportunities to to bring technology products to people that are in this business. So. Um, we'll be rolling out some new um, software products sometime in 17 as well hmm. that help um, you know help people analyze deals understand what they should pay for properties um, do sensitivity analysis stress tests um, pull data in from the same data sources that we use to underwrite loans um, you know again all with kind of the, the core value proposition of being, um, a value add partner to our to our borrowers to make sure that they can make you know smarter, faster decisions on which properties they're purchasing. Um, and we think that will also help us um, grow our lending business as well. So um, kind of our, our 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 long, long-term vision prop, right, is that you know when when you Andrew wake up in the morning, the first thing you do is you sign on to fund that flip. Um, and our platform helps you manage all of your projects, analyze them, uh, manage the back end of them um and and get funding if you need um if you need so interesting um, yeah i'm pretty pretty excited we're going to start i think have have some of our first software products out this year as well
0: oh wow yeah that's that sounds great um yeah i can't wait to hear more about that i'll keep my eye on for announcements there um great yeah i think that was great you know i really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing with us today um you know, it's like I wish the best for, you know, 2016 uh, sounds like you have some cool things in the works um, for, you know, growing things and growing some of the uh, the products and services that you're offering and uh, yeah, just kill it, you know, on the East Coast and as you expand.
1: Thanks, man. Same to you and uh, good luck with, with the podcast. Happy to be uh, one of your your earliest guests.
0: My, my Yeah, our first guest. <laughs>
1: It's awesome. Great. Yeah, I think Some, someday when you're huge, I'm going to look back at this and be like, "Hey, remember that time?"
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So great. Cool. I think that's a perfect place to end uh the show. Um thanks, Matt.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Andrew.
0: All right, we'll see ya.